and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're taking a look at all the spring TV coming up, from The Handmaid's Tale to Twin Peaks. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Solar Sites. Hi, Gazelle. About to take a sip of coffee. Sorry I was to about you. to. No, <laughs> I was like, yeah, hello. oh, hello. There's no time for sipping. <laughs> no coffee. <laughs> I had to stop myself because I didn't want to be like gargling. Like, oh, I appreciate good it. Good morning. <laughs> and hey, Jen. Hi, uh, Jen Cheney, Vulture TV columnist. Good to see you. Good You've to got see you guys. Awesome new haircut. Oh, thank you. A little blonder, just in time for spring. <laughs> Which apparently is canceled <laughs> because yeah. there's a blizzard yeah. coming as we're speaking well, right now. Climate change, everyone. It's like it's winter, real. winter rem- reminding itself. Ah, I forgot. Yeah. I, I mean, forgot there, we didn't. I guess we didn't have like a. We had kind of a storm, but maybe not a. You guys had more in New York. This winter. Yeah. In New York, you had some snow. We have had nothing in D.C. So this is our first real snow of any Mm -hmm. kind. Uh, I I feel like it's winter's twist ending. Just when you thought. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that, Jen. So before we get into what's coming up on television this spring, I thought we could use this week's prompt to look back at what we have already seen. And I'm curious, guys, what's your, what has been your favorite show this winter? Oh, I guess I'm supposed Matt, to go first. You I see go? that you, you I, raised I, your I looked, eyebrow at me. That <laughs> I looked over turn. at you, but <laughs> yeah, okay. the floor is open. <laughs> uh, I, I have to go with the young Pope. Since your country never thaws, I have to wonder, what's under all that ice? The experts believe that Greenland is not an island, but an archipelago of islands. But that's strictly a matter of supposition. As you say, the country never thaws and no one can see what's under there. I think the experts are wrong. Really, Holy Father? Yes. Under all that ice could be God. Uh, I have to go with the young pope. I can't believe I forgot about the young pope. Yeah, well. It feels like so long ago. I just really, really, really like it. And and in fact, I think if I had to make a list, you know, if the year were suddenly declared over right now, I'd have to I'd have to pick the young pope as my show of the year. Wow. Yeah, and it's Did weird because Did you expect because, to like it so much? No, when it I sort of gave it a I gave it a mostly kind of cautiously positive review, but it was kind of one of those wait and see reviews, but uh it just really grew on me, and I just like—I I sort of—I think that I adapted to it. I think I just adapted to the vibe of it, and I like the—I like the fact that it was kind of a mystery right up to the end as to what in the hell you were looking at. Mm-hmm. I liked it, and I also liked it as like this sounds like it's a diss, but it's really not. But the kind of the audiovisual wallpaper quality of it appealed to me, like the way they'd have like. They had a 10-minute sequence with, like, the young pope and the president of Italy, like, talking about the future of, of – the political future of Italy in relation to the Catholic Church. And there was techno music playing on the soundtrack. <laughs> that was one of the best scenes, I think. That was great. It was a great <laughs> scene. And they had all these, like, great montages and that – the ending was, like, this crazy, like, something out of, uh, like, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, that ending – it I kind just, of surprised you by not choosing not to make it a 
make it lead up to something dramatic, where no. it was much more grounded in character than I was expecting. It was, but it was also sort of disjoint, like purposefully disjointed, mm-hmm. like as a style choice, but disjointed like the Bible is disjointed. Mm-hmm. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, like it's you kind can of t- poetic. Yeah, I mean, you can sort of like choose to read particular chapters or verses of the young pope and extract meaning from it or just enjoy the way the language sounds. But I I really, really liked it. I just, it was so weird. Yeah. Just weird. I give 50 bonus points for weirdness. You know that about me. (laughs) It was also just a great showcase for Jude Law. Like I I could just watch what he was doing for hours. Um, Not just because he's so darn pretty, but he was just I was going to say, not just because he's the hot pope. Let's not let's not forget our hot pope jokes. Doesn't it seem like we made those like five years ago? It does. It does. It really well, time does. time really flies. It may have been pre-Trump. That may have been why. <laughs> yeah. Time flies when you got fascism. It's really crazy. <laughs> but the hot pope is still hot, and that's what's important. Yeah. I know. I'm incredibly handsome, but please let's try to forget about that. How about you, Jen? Well. It's weird to think of this as a winter show because by the time it ends, it will be spring. But um, I think my answer to go with another HBO series is Big Little Lies. Great. See that? It's so pretty. I know, right? <laughs> Madeline. Hello. Yes, of course, you guys go play. Hi. How are That's you? Great. Pregnant again? Of course. When am I not? You look fantastic. Thank you. Did you? Oh, uh, no, but you're sweet to think I did. Well, you look fabulous. Thank you. Hi, Jackie. Good to see you. Gabby is such a gossip. We don't like Hey, her. Maddie. Have you seen Justin at all? Oh, I think he whooshed past here. Are we doing the wine table? Which mm. I really love. I love it as escapism, but I also think there's a lot more depth to it than just being a, a pure piece of fluff. I love that it's such a great acting showcase for these women. Um, you know, Weesh Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, uh, Laura Dern, Shailene Woodley, uh, and that as a mom, there are certain things in it that I certainly can relate to. Mm-hmm. But of all the shows that I watched so far this year, that was the one where I, I started watching the first one on a Friday night, and I just went through all the ones that I had, right af- one right after the other. And I barely took any notes because I was like, what's what's going on now? Like, I was just so yeah. Yeah. invested in it right from the very beginning. So that's my favorite. I felt the same. And I, I you had a, a great piece up today, Jen, about how a lot of people are kind of treating the show as much more soapy and trashy than it than it really is at, the, at its heart. Mm-hmm. And I, I I think that's important to highlight because it's it's a show about women, as you said, and that kind of lumps it into that category, but it's actually much more character-driven and rooted in reality than most soaps are, yeah. as, you, as you put it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's also a great example of a show where nobody is right. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, that's one of the things that really appeals to me about it is nobody on the show is right. There are some characters who are sort of more immediately sympathetic than others when you first meet them. But there's no one character on the show who is consistently right. And in fact, a lot of the ones who make sense in a certain scene will be kind of insufferable in another scene because you're kind of seeing them through the eyes of a different character. And that's something that's very hard to pull off, mm-hmm. on yes. a, especially on a serialized TV show where you want a particular point of view to dominate. And they they really have done a great job of making this an ensemble show, I think. I had said this in my piece. Some of the reviews were sort of criticizing it for being cliche in terms of some of the issues that it deals with as far as like abuse and the scene that I had written about with um, Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman in the car where they're talking about, you know, kind of giving up their careers and the 
conflicted feelings they feel about trying to work and be mothers at the same time. And yeah, have we heard people talk about that issue like a million times before? Sure. But I, I feel like have we seen comic book origin stories a million times before? Yes, we have. Like, it doesn't matter that we've seen it before. Is it being told in a way that feels truthful and that to me feels like I'm hearing a song I'm familiar with, but it sounds different to me because of the way that they're doing it. And that's that's yeah. what I feel about this show. Like, I, I find it, I let's have more shows where women talk about their issues and it's just them on screen and it's passing the Bechdel test. I'd be fine with that. <laughs> well, what's your favorite, Gazelle? My favorite, you know, I think going into this season of television, I thought it was going to be Legion before I had watched it. Interesting. And I just haven't been as pulled in as I thought I would be, uh, even though I love Noah Hawley, which is why I thought I would be sold on it. And I'm, it's it's a it's a slow burn, so I'm kind of giving it some time. But I I think at its heart, it still feels you know like a superhero show, which isn't exactly my taste. And the show that I didn't know that I wanted was Riverdale, which we've talked about right. before. <laughs> yeah. Previously on Riverdale, this story is about a town once wholesome and innocent, now forever changed by the mysterious murder of Jason Blossom on the Fourth of July. Your father hired the South Side Serpents to decrease the value of the rest of his land. Where's the rest of it? The rest of it. <laughs> so where are you going to live now? I'll figure it out, Dad. I always do. I saw you, Mom, with Fred Andrews. Two signatures are needed to award the contract. Sorry, Mom, but no, I don't want any part of it. And it's kind of this soapy teen drama that's just a lot of fun. And this is a show that I was so ready to write off before it premiered. And I've just been in purely enjoying it. And I think that's been a nice thing to have amid all the serious television. Mm. And sometimes I think if I had to quibble with it, I, I wish it weren't a murder mystery, which is the same problem that I have with Big Little Lies as much as I love it. It's like the, the dramas of these people's lives is so rich yeah. as it is on both Riverdale as like teens in high school and on Big Little Lies as women living in Monterey. Right. That the the murder mystery elements just kind of distract from that a bit. But, you know, if Riverdale keeps pulling out these classic Hollywood references and if it continues to delve deeper into these the lives of these teens, like I'm totally on board. And at some point they're going to have to solve the murder mystery and move on. So that's this week's prompt, guys. <laughs> Listeners, if you would like to weigh in or suggest a prompt for the future, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. We'd love to hear from you. Next up, we're talking spring television. We'll be right back. So the spring is probably one of the most, if not the most crowded season for television, particularly when it comes to all the prestige TV shows that seem like they're trying to get in there before the Emmy Emmy cutoffs in June, I believe. Yep. Um, and typically the biggest show to air during the spring is Game of Thrones, but this year it's premiering on July 16th. Mm -hmm. As we so, know from watching an iceberg melt for an hour straight <laughs> yeah. on Facebook Live. Yes. I'm I don't know about it. how many of you caught that, but the way HBO decided to announce the news was by airing a video of a block of ice melting for literally over an hour. And then when the I, I didn't actually see the now final that's a reveal, show that is but... confident that its audience will never desert them. No matter <laughs> yeah, what. no, the, the audience definitely turned on them in this moment once they realized <laughs> what was going on. Maybe next time it'll be like you're you're literally watching paint dry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't put it past them. But 
Yeah, so we thought we'd take a look forward at what is filling this big Game of Thrones-sized hole in your spring. And the one that is most, you know, literally doing that is The Leftovers, because their final season is actually getting that plum Game of Thrones spot. Mm-hmm. It's premiering on Sunday, April 16th, which is around, I believe, in the same time slot, and that's around the time Game of Thrones usually premieres. Where is that in relation to Twin Peaks? About a month schedule. beforehand. Uh, yeah, I believe okay. Twin Peaks is May 20th around there. Right. But okay. Yeah, so so this season of The Leftovers is moving to Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Damon Lindelof said, Australia is the end of the world geographically, and our show is about the end of the world emotionally. I'm sure the people <laughs> of Australia appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> well, as they said and on Lost, he, Australia is the key to the game. So that's also true. probably important. Well, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, I am curious how Australians feel about how we talk about them, but that's a subject for another show. Um, (laughs) uh, He added that there's something about Australian cinema, its primal, ancient, and spiritual, that felt like it fit the leftovers, whether it's Mad Max movies or Walkabout or Waking Fright or Peter Weir movies. So so that's that's a little bit of a preview of what's to come as Vegas. That makes me very excited because I think he his actually his description of of not all Australian cinema but a lot of that kind of se- trippy 70s 80s art house cinema if that's what they're going for yeah. I'm totally there. Totally. I'm totally there like I'm a picnic at hanging rock the last wave like that whole period before Peter Weir became a Hollywood director when he was doing these you know, these movies that have what a, a good friend of mine used to call 70s head-scratcher endings. Mm-hmm. You know, you get to the ending of it, you're like, what the hell happened? <laughs> you don't know. The, the sh- I could and the movie doesn't definitely tell you. see The Leftovers doing that. I, can't, I can completely see that. But that's, yeah. yeah, that's great. They talked about Picnic at Hanging Rock last year as something they were trying to evoke. So it sounds like they're pushing mm-hmm. even harder in that direction. And I bet Damon Lindelof feels a lot of pressure when it comes to ending this show considering mm-hmm. – how Lost was received, how its ending was received. Yeah, and yet, um, having spent all those seasons working on Lost, I bet he has developed a particular set of theories about what worked and what didn't. And also, you know, that that show, this is much more his show than Lost right, was. Right, right. You know, That's he true. was a voice on Lost, but he's the voice on this show. It does seem he's kind of become the punching bag, though, in a way. He has. Mm-hmm. Where he ends up apologizing and, like, he got <laughs> off Twitter, so many interviews. Uh, you know, because of it. Yeah. In, in part, anyway. Um, but this is also... <laughs> this is also <laughs> a, a, not smaller in terms of scope or ambition, but smaller in terms of the amount of attention on it as opposed to lost which was like mm-hmm. it felt like the entire yeah. country was like what's going to happen in the finale and that's he right. doesn't have that pressure around the leftovers but i'm just excited because i feel like even when i was watching this gosh it, it ended what a, a year ago december now um the, the second season mm-hmm. i i felt like the sense of the show is picking up on this vibe of uncertainty and like how do you go on when the world doesn't make sense to you. And my God, if that doesn't feel even more resonant now than it did in season two or season one. So from that perspective, and not to make every single show that we watch about um, the Trump era, but I, I feel like it, it's not going to be about politics, but it is about this sort of underlying feeling. And I feel like Lost did that too. Like there was a sense of post 9-11, like how do you deal with you know this this tragedy that's happened, and how do you how do you move mm-hmm. forward? And and I feel like that picked up on that kind of vibe in the zeitgeist as well. You know, we're all huge fans of this show. Yes. So I think we're all going to be looking 
I think I, for one, thought that it could have ended after its finale in season two. Yeah, but then again, it could have ended after season one, too. Yeah, yeah. but I think the the fina- the ending in season two was so beautiful. Yeah. And such a perfect final image that I'm almost sad it wasn't the final image of the show just because I I was just so moved by it. Um, right. Where, to me, it's going to be a little bit hard to top that. That said, I'm so happy it has another season. I'm very excited to see what they do here. Definitely, but, definitely. But yeah. And then we've got uh, Fargo. Season yes, three of Fargo which with Ewan will, McGregor as twins. Yes, and it will also star Carrie Coon, right? Who is excellent on the leftovers. I feel strongly right. that April should be that. April should be Carrie Coon Appreciation Month officially. Yes. Someone should decree it. Uh, I think Jen it already named is. her. Jen named her the best actress of the year in 2016. And yes, I feel like she has a shot at the title again. Potentially. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, th- so this season of Fargo is going to be. Uh, pretty contemporary. I believe it takes place in 2010 and it's going to take on our selfie driven culture. Mm-hmm. So, and look at that within this world where it's kind of antith- antithetical to that world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe Noah Hawley put it as, you know, it's kind of this Lutheran pragmatism of the region and how they kind of react to this new technology. Right. Do you think yeah. there's a point where, this show will start to feel like it's doing the same thing. Well, probably, but on the other hand, they've kind of accounted for that. They, in that little, uh, there was an episode in season two that began with um, a narrator played by Martin Freeman, who was in season one, uh, putting what you had seen thus far in season two within the context of a book of true crimes of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you accept that this series is basically an extended version of true crimes of the Midwest, you know, you know what you're getting. Right. You know, and like, you know, I could say that like Prime Suspect was basically kind of the same story over and over, spread out over, you know, whatever it was, 18 years. But it kind of wasn't, you know, like right. it was and it wasn't. And that's sort of that's the essence of TV, I think, is it is you are kind of getting the same thing over and over a lot of the time. And yet you're not. It's like not only is it not the same show from season to season, it's not the same show from week to week or scene to scene. It's the infinite variations that make it TV. Mm-hmm. Very well put, Matt. Thank you. That's what I tell. <laughs> that's what I tell myself anyway. <laughs> well, it kind of goes back to what Jen was saying earlier, too, about Big Little Lies. Like, you've seen it before, but it's done in a different way. Well, that was the thing I was going to say was, Jen, you know, when you said that, I I, I suddenly felt this, like, flash of frustration whenever I hear people, like, when a a movie comes out that's about some big theme, like it's, like, war or slavery or the Holocaust or whatever, there's always somebody who says, like, I don't need to see that movie. I already know that slavery is bad. (laughs) As if that's the point. Right. As if that's the point of that movie or any movie, you know, like like as if right. like I already I already know domestic violence is bad. So I don't need to see this show that has a domestic violence plot line. It's like that's not the reason the show exists. That's not why the people made the show. That's not why the actors are on the show. That's really a dumb thing to say. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? And yet people go to countless superhero movies every year. Without that <laughs> and I. <laughs> right. Well, it's like as if, you know, the purpose of art is to be an information delivery system. You know, mm-hmm. like to teach to, to to give you raw information that you didn't previously have. Like that's as if that's the reason right. we go to movies, watch television shows, read books. No, 
Right. It's just, I just, ugh. Anyway, before I, before I turn into Andy Rooney, we should probably keep going. <laughs> well, well, the next show on our list is, I think, has the potential to be the biggest, if not one of the biggest shows of the spring, and that's The Handmaid's Tale, which is based on the Margaret Atwood book. Uh, and it's it's set in a dystopian future in which women's rights have largely been taken away. And Man, well, that's hard to my imagine. Gosh. <laughs> Going to have to suspend my disbelief a little bit, but maybe I can do it. <laughs> and and the, the handmaids are, are one class of women in this society who are forced to produce babies for their masters due to sterility issues in this society. And Elizabeth Moss plays plays one of those handmaidens, uh, handmaids. And yeah, this is kind of Hulu's, Hulu's first big play that I think could actually hit with, with audiences. Yeah. The, the Path was their, their big play last year. Yeah. That Aaron Paul show. Didn't, didn't really yeah. connect. No. Uh, and this one is just, you know, I, I've, I've seen the first couple episodes and I have not read the book, but I found it incredibly good at world building where it kind of immediately place, pulls you in and gives you, you know, enough information, but not too much information where it feels like it's spelling it out for you. And yeah, I, I just, it's, it's just beautifully done too. the colors, the costuming, the production design, like everything, all the makings of like a great, um, a a big kind of tentpole series for Hulu to to pull in a lot of different types of people who who might like it for different reasons. Well, I also think that I think there's a built-in audience that's going to be interested purely because that novel um, really resonated with a lot of people. Uh, and mm-hmm. the reason I haven't started watching the screeners yet is I I feel like I read it a long time ago, like. 20 years ago or something. And so I want to actually read it again before I start watching the show. But um, mm-hmm. the fact that Margaret Atwood has been involved directly in the series too, um, I think is encouraging. Yeah. And I do think it's a show where we're going to see a lot of Halloween costumes this year mm-hmm. based on it because it has this uh, very vivid red cape that these handmaids mm-hmm. wear that is just like – Kind of a perfect easy Halloween costume. Just FYI, <laughs> <laughs> for all if of you you're planning early, yeah. Um, but yeah, I I also I was also surprised by how much I like Alexis Bledel in this show. It kind of felt like the role she was born to play as a handmaid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She kind of has this aura that um, she channels that that is just feels more right for this type of role than. Um, where it felt like she had to kind of pull away from that for Gilmore Girls, where she's able to kind of pull into this kind of um, intensity on Handmaid's Tale. I think I really she, liked. I think she might have had a practice run for that on season five of Mad Men. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think she's just she's matured. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I, I thought in the the reboot of Gilmore Girls that she was more convincing than she was certainly when she was younger. Uh, even if the things she had to do as her character sometimes were a little bit over the top. Um, yes, I thought, and I think that gets... Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I think that gets in the way of us being able to see her as an actress because her character on Gilmore Girls was so dis- unlikable in that 
latest season especially mm-hmm. yeah. where it conversations about the character kind of overlapped with conversations about Alexis Bledel and how good she is. Right, right. Beca- just because if you don't like her character, maybe you think her acting isn't good. Yeah, I, I was really happy to see her on this show. Hey, let's talk about great news. Can we talk about great news now? Yes, yes, please. Uh, I have to thank you, Can Giselle. you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, um, so, so this is an NBC sitcom. It premieres on April 25th, created by uh, Tracy Wigfield, who used to write for 30 Rock. And this, like 30 Rock, is produced by Tina Fey and Robert Carlock. Uh, and the premise is uh, Brigga Heelan plays a TV news reporter who keeps getting all the kind of fluff pieces and she wants to really prove that she's capable of more substantive journalism. And then her mom becomes an intern. <laughs> uh and uh, it's that's basically the setup. But I, I watched the first, I think, two or three episodes uh, on your recommendation, Gazelle. And I just it's just immediately out of the gate, really funny, uh, dealing with a lot of issues about ageism, um, but in a way that is, um, I think, smart and clever and has that same kind of rhythm that 30 Rock and, and Kimmy Schmidt have, where it's just boom, 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 one thing right after the other. Um, and has a great cast. Andrea Martin plays the mom. Uh, and then you have these two anchors on the newscast uh, that the the TV news channel they work on. Um, it's played by John Michael Higgins, who's amazing. And then Nicole Richie, who is just really great. And that was uh, kind of a pleasant so surprise. Funny. <laughs> it is, it is she, a nice surprise. You know, Nicole Richie ha- is on this reality show called Candidly Nicole on VH1 that I've only seen a handful of episodes of. But she is so naturally funny and just compelling to watch i've always you know i she's always just someone i've had a soft soft spot for and like kind of wanted to do really well so i'm just so happy to see her on this show Mm -hmm. and to see her being taken seriously as a comedic actress yes yeah um yeah it's definitely got a it's got a mary tyler moore show kind of vibe and not just mm -hmm. for the obvious reasons Mm -hmm. like the tone just the, the, the whole tone of it and also the way that it's it's sort of it's it's warm, but not so warm that it's gooey, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's wacky, but not at the expense of everything else. Yeah, NBC has kind of turned things around a little bit when it comes to their comedies. With this, between this and The Good Place, mm-hmm. like they're kind of That's starting true. to build up their comedy brand a little bit again. Another big show I'm looking forward to is Dear White People which I've actually never seen the film, but it's based on a film from a few years ago by Justin Simeon. And the TV show is also created by him as well. And it follows a group of black students at a predominantly white Ivy League school. One of them hosts a a podcast called Dear White People, which is where the show gets its name from. And it kind of calls out racism happening on campus. I think the first episode kind of is a lot of more setup. And the second episode, which I've only seen the first two episodes, the second episode, I felt like it really started to find its humor. Right. And it it really gives you a sense of how varied the black community is on this campus, because there are all these different clubs who all have a different goal or way of thinking about how to deal with racism. And they all kind of roll their eyes at one another. And I just find this kind of very specificity they bring to all these different groups on campus is just like makes for a lot of great comedy. I haven't seen any episodes of the show yet, but that was the strength of the of the film. As yeah, well. mm-hmm. that's yeah. great. Twin Peaks, guys. Twin Peaks. <laughs> Yay, Twin Peaks. I think. Uh, I hope. Yeah. I mean, we don't have much. We don't have much we know about this one. 
there's hard to talk about because yeah, there's little out there except hope. <laughs> They're going to bring. I think. I think Lynch is going to bring. He's going to bring the weird. He's going to bring you're the so, weird. You're so you think so? Confident, he, Matt. Aside from the straight story, he has brought the weird every single time. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like to a degree that people aren't ready for. That's what I mean. Uh-huh. I mean, like, I don't just mean like I, I and I've said this before on the show, but I'm going to say it again, just in case you missed the previous episode of the show. The David Lynch who's doing this new Twin Peaks is not the same David Lynch that you remember from 1990, 91, that period. Like, yeah, that, right. that like and there are a lot of people who will tell you, like, I'm a big David Lynch fan. But what they mean is they saw Blue Velvet and the pilot of Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Right. And they think that's David Lynch. But David Lynch is also Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway right. and Inland Empire and like, you know, uh, a book about transcendental meditation. <laughs> you know, and and he's increasingly, if anything, he's gotten more cranky and more abstract as he's gotten older. And it may be that he's going to, you know, he's back with Mark Frost on this. Maybe he's going to tether it to narrative again. So I could be completely wrong, but I don't think, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I mean, like we're talking like we're 27 years down the road now. Right. And this is a different David Lynch. And I can't wait. I'm really, really excited. I mean, I'm excited for the show and I'm also excited to see people going, this is not what I thought it was. Right. Be. <laughs> oh, that'll be. Yeah, that'll be funny to watch if there's like this whole group of Twin Peaks fans who only know David Lynch as a person who did this TV show they like. Yes, and then there will be like <laughs> think pieces saying, "What happened to the Twin Peaks that you know I knew and loved?" Right. You know, bring back the real Twin Peaks. <laughs> oh God. Yes. I'm kind of dreading but it. Now I don't that know. You're talking I, about it. <laughs> I have to say, like, I think you're totally right about this, but. At the time, if it's possible to kind of rewind your brain, like, that seemed weird as hell when that was on ABC. I mean... Oh, it completely did. It was tethered to narrative for sure. And and, and I can see yeah. this being much more abstract and just like really uh, a mindfucker in a lot of ways that that one wasn't. But nevertheless, yeah. it's not like it's not like people were watching Twin Peaks then and saying, gosh, this seems totally normal and like a regular show. Like people were even reacting to that like, I don't know what this is and what I'm watching, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think that, but I do think that Lynch is, uh, I think that Lynch is not going to go into this just, you know, I don't think he's ever really done anything for the money since, you know, except for the occasional advertisement on Japanese TV, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And 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 uh, I don't think he's going to go into this just say, yeah, I'll do Twin Peaks again, I'll give the public what they want, and I'll make a bunch of money. Right. I think he's going to want to push things ahead, and, and I, I say all that because... Yeah, absolutely. Twin Peaks was radical in its day, but there have been a lot of shows that have come along since then that have borrowed bits and pieces of what what David Lynch and Mark Frost did on Twin Peaks, including Lost, The Sopranos, The Leftovers, X Files. I mean, you know, we could be yeah Riverdale. We could we could go on for like you know twenty minutes listing the shows that have bitten off pieces of Twin Peaks and made their own thing out of them. Mm -hmm. And Lynch, I really think Lynch is going to want to push things forward again. That's what I think. Well, and, I think. and he could he could disappoint me. He could disappoint me, and I turn it on. And it's like basically just you know, it's like a ro- It's like going to see the Who again, and they're like you know seventy six years old, and they're doing Bob O'Reilly again. You know, mm-hmm. like, but yeah. I don't think that's what Lynch is going to do. I just don't. Well, I, I think you're right that he does not care what anybody thinks. Like he's going to he's going to go with whatever his vision was for this, and you know whether you like it or not, he really doesn't care. Um, yeah. But but I I I think you're right to say that. That show became so influential that people who don't remember it, like, in in 1990, watch it now and it seems normal in a way that it did not in 1990. And I think that's yeah, what yeah, has yeah. gotten lost a little bit. 
you know. Well, what I hope doesn't happen here is that it uh, it continues to get more seasons. I kind of like the idea of just having a return and just having it as a limited run series. With the X-Files, you know, there's after it aired last year, it the, the talk was, you know, when is the show going to get renewed? And it immediately became like, how can we churn out more of this? And the same thing is happening with Gilmore Girls currently. Right. Whereas I, I think I would like reboots a lot more if they were just kind of revisitings and not, you know, beginning the cycle anew where yes. you, you kind of have this endless potential of an endless number of seasons that just just does not interest me. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I agree with that. Also, I don't think there's anyone left to cast if they do more seasons of Twin Peaks because every actor in all of humanity yeah. is in the show. <laughs> right. And and this season, you know, all the original cast members will be there and but there will also be some new ones including Naomi Watts, Amanda Seyfried and David Duchovny. Yes. So. Well, uh, David Duchovny's not new though. No, he's not. David no, he was oh. he was a he was a, a, a transgender FBI agent. That's right. right. That is correct. Yeah, that's part of the hole. He came in during that hole that people forget. Yes, <laughs> oh my that's God. right. That's right. Wow. But Laura Dern wow. will be in it. Laura Dern was never in the original, and she's going to be in the mm. new. It's like the David Lynch. Basically, the David Lynch repertory company is in yes. this. <laughs> it's the All Star Team. David Lynch's All Star Team. It is. It is. Although I feel like they should have made a little. They should have carved out a part for Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> oh yeah, that's the one conspicuous absence. That's a whole. David, yeah, Jeff Goldblum needed to be in this somehow, <laughs> and who knows? Maybe, maybe he, he will is. be. Maybe he is maybe in he some way be. that we don't understand yet. <laughs> American Gods. Oh yes, American Gods. So this is over on Stars, and it is a Brian Fuller show. So I know Matt will be watching this one closely. Very much. <laughs> Brian so. Fuller, of course, is the creator of Hannibal. Yep. And Pushing yep. Daisies. I just have to put in a Pushing mm-hmm. Daisies plug. Yes. Yeah. And this is based on the this is based on the Neil Gaiman book about how gods and mythological creatures exist because people believe in them. And I, I've watched the first episode of this, and I kind of don't know how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, I haven't watched it yet. I, I I try not to judge a show too much based on its first episode either. But I know my colleague Abraham Reisman is obsessed with it. So I do think that there is a fan base out there for it. I'm just not sure yet if I am one of those people, even though I really loved Hannibal. And it definitely has that Brian Fuller aesthetic with this kind of violence shot and gorgeous detail and kind of dissonant sounds as as music. Other than that, I think the other big show that I'm really looking forward to is I Love Dick, which they recently announced is premiering in April. Like everything and you may have. Co- yeah, like every every other show. <laughs> you you may have caught the pilot for this last fall when it was released as part of Amazon's pilot they program. Call it? Yeah, don't they pilot call it the program? program? Yeah, yes. yeah. They call it the yeah. pilot program. Yeah. When they released I Love Dick and The Tick and one other show, potentially. And this one was, I think, a clear winner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It it's based on a, a novel by Chris Kraus, which is kind of a love letter to an art critic she falls madly in love with and it kind of became this feminist cult classic and from what I've heard the show doesn't hew like super closely to the text because it's difficult 
to do that. Yeah, it's epistolary. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> I haven't read the book, but yeah, I, I, I was it's wondering I was wondering how how they were going to do that. Yeah. But Catherine Hahn, for those of you who are have been fans of her for a while, this is feels like her meatiest role yet. And just so great to see her leading a TV series. Another thing I really liked about it is the directing in that mm-hmm. first episode by yeah. Jill Soloway. And yeah, she's terrific. Yeah, it just really puts you in this environment. They're in like, it's New Mexico, I think, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just, you immediately feel almost like the heat of the environment. And it's, it's very, very immersive in the same way that I think Transparent is immersive too. Um, so I was all ready to watch like, oh, let's go to the next episodes. But of course, there weren't any then. So I'm excited yeah. that uh, that we'll get to see the whole season. You know, we have a bunch of returning shows as well. Most of them are coming back in April. Those include Veep, Silicon Valley, Better Call Saul, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and Catastrophe. I think Kimmy Schmidt yeah, is May, isn't I think, it? Oh, is it May? I think it I might think be. I'm not positive. Right. Yeah. It's still the spring, I guess, technically. Still the spring. Yeah. Time to reset your DVRs because there's a whole lot of TV coming back. And a lot of these are a lot of my favorite comedies on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, Silicon Valley, I think, just... Thinking about shows that make me laugh out loud consistently, I really yeah. <laughs> like think Silicon Valley is that show for me. It is. Yeah. It is really funny. It's truly a funny show. And Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, I think, is a close second. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just really prioritized joke-driven comedy in a way that they're really, really good at. Um and I'm excited and, about Veep just because I'm curious to see, you know, now that she's no longer in the White House and she's trying to kind of uh, Julia Wee Dreyfus's character is trying to establish what her legacy should be in the brief period that she served as president. Um, when there's another woman serving as president and probably taking credit for some of the things that she may have done. And uh, oh I, yeah, freeing Tibet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think that whole idea of her trying to create a legacy for herself and maybe not having as much control of the narrative is a good setup for her. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and definitely. will be interesting to, again, to kind of look at through the lens of what's happening now with Obama's legacy. But they have said they're yeah. not going to – they're purposely not pulling from – you know, they've, they've written these things mm-hmm. well in advance. They're not pulling from from contemporary current events. But, but nevertheless, I think it will be hard to watch it without thinking of some of that stuff. That's one of the things that fascinates me most about, about television, movies, all popular cultures have – Sometimes it seems to be reflecting what's happening right at this exact moment, even though it was made six months or a year earlier. Right. Yeah. Like American American Crime season uh, three, which uh, I've been watching, uh, Mm -hmm. is like that. Like it really feels like it's it's almost eerie how attuned it is to things that are in the news every single day. Well, it's pretty impressive because the show decided to focus on things that weren't, you know necessarily in vogue to talk about at the time because it thought they they were important right now in a twist of fate they are part of the conversation right and but like john ridley deserves a lot of credit for kind of choosing to focus on this these issues even though he probably thought at the time that it wasn't going to be the type of subject matter that would get huge numbers of viewers you know even but, even Silicon Valley, I think, is going to have a touch of that because mm-hmm. so much there's been so much commentary about the uh, the reaction of Silicon Valley to Trump's election and how um, you know the tech sector and and uh, you know on the online kind of right wing communities have driven Trump's election. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'm sure Silicon Valley isn't intentionally, there's no way they could have had anything directly to say about that. But there's probably going to be a bunch of scenes on in this new season where you think they did. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. But. And then Catastrophe, which this is completely different thing. But the question is, how are they going to handle Carrie Fisher's death? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which. She had um, shot some stuff for that season, didn't she? I think so. I think they said that she had. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's so, airing now on British have TV. To, that's right. And then, you know, that one left on a cliffhanger with Rob suspecting that Sharon may have had an affair. A lot of these shows ended on cliffhangers. Kimmy Schmidt ends with what's his name? The cult leader who John Hamm plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Reverend. Yes. <laughs> thank you, Jordan. <laughs> Better Call Saul. I think the big thing there is that Giancarlo Esposito will be returning as Gus Fring. Yes. Which will probably bring a lot of Breaking Bad fans to the show if they hadn't For sure. come to it already. Yeah. 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 I wish more of them would come to that show. I feel like I talk to people yeah. all the time and say, do you, they say they watched Breaking Bad and we go, oh, do you watch Better Call Saul? And they're like, no. I'm like, why not? <laughs> it's a different kind of show, but it's it's really yeah. terrific. Yeah, that's really and good. We did an interview with, uh, John Carlo last week where he said that when Vince Gilligan was deciding what show to do a spinoff of, he was deciding between Saul and Gus Fring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. I I would love to see... I mean, I think there's totally potential for a Gus Fring spinoff as oh, well. Oh, completely. Yeah. So yeah, his we'll early years when line. he was coming up and he was in his 20s and yeah, yeah that could be cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The expanded Badiverse. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised we haven't seen a a Mad Men spinoff yet. Uh, You know, I keep holding out hope that, I mean, obviously I want everybody's careers to go so well that they don't need to do Mad Men again. But on Mm -hmm. the other hand, wouldn't it be great if you got, you know, Elizabeth Moss back? Yeah, or even like a little Sally Draper spinoff or or something. But, you know, like the obvious the the obvious follow up is just do mad women. And it's about, uh, (laughs) you know, it's about uh, 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 Peggy and Joan, you know, starting their own agency like they talked about doing and like started on the Bicentennial in 1976 and and keep it going on from there. And then you get to see like Joan at Studio 54 and. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. That's a great Don't idea. Jesus, Matt. <laughs> I mean, you know, sounds so great, good. And Roger Sterling shows up and his mustache is even bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would also just watch Pete Campbell falling downstairs for an hour every week. Like that <laughs> <laughs> He could be the Mr. Roper of Mad Women. <laughs> uh, well, that's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's Aria. This week, it's Jen's turn. Here we go. The whole season coming down to this. They're going to have to do something from the outside now. It's Paige off balance. Puts it home. Impossible. How did he do that? Every year, office productivity plummets during the month of March because America's workers take their heads out of the game so they can focus on the mini games in the NCAA tournament. Admittedly, some of us are distracted because we've got money on the outcomes in this annual college basketball contest. But I think there's another reason why so many of us have trouble turning our eyes away from the screen when an eight seed is facing off against a nine seed. It's because college basketball is really riveting television. Admittedly, I may be a little biased about this. College basketball is my favorite sport to watch and one I pay attention to during the winter months before everyone else jumps on the March Madness bandwagon. But one of the reasons I love it is that especially in March, it is great TV. 
It's exciting and full of surprises and never more than in the first weekend of the NCAA tournament when 60-plus teams get whittled down to a field of 16. In fact, the qualities that make those initial rounds of basketball action so enjoyable echo certain aspects of the current TV landscape. For starters, there's the oversaturation factor. As podcast listeners know, there's never been more of an embarrassment of scripted television riches than the one that exists right now. There is a constant stream of episodes of new and ongoing series flowing all year round onto the traditional broadcast networks, PBS, basic cable channels, HBO, Showtime, other premium cable channels that keep adding scripted TV to their rosters, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, Acorn TV, CBS All Access, Crackle, and it just goes on and on. If you're paid to be a TV critic, I've just described the reasons why every week pushes you closer and closer to having an aneurysm. But if you're someone who watches TV for pleasure, this is pretty spectacular. So many potentially wonderful things to watch all at once. The first two days of the NCAA tournament are like this in microcosm form. On Thursday and Friday, when March Madness begins in earnest, games are streaming and broadcast on CBS, TNT, TBS, and True TV all day long. At most hours of the afternoon or evening, four games are unfolding simultaneously. During the first two rounds of March Madness, it is theoretically possible to start watching basketball at noon and not stop until sometime after midnight. Because I am not a sports writer and I do not have to cover any of this for a living, guess what? It is glorious. I'm not saying I've ever timed a major illness to fall at the beginning of the NCAA tournament so I could justify taking a sick day during this magical time, but I have thought about it. It's overwhelming in the same way that television content in general is overwhelming right now. The other great peak TV-ish thing about the early days of March Madness is that it functions like an anthology series. You can jump into a game without knowing what happened in previous games or even in the first half and still get sucked into the narrative. When you flip on a contest in which a 15 seed is beating a 2 seed by 2 points, you don't need anyone to explain the stakes or context. It's all right there in front of you. It's like a Black Mirror episode, minus the disturbing technology and Bryce Dallas Howard having a nervous breakdown. But I don't like basketball that much, you say. I don't even care for sports, really, unless that delightful Matt Saracen from Friday Night Lights is involved. I cannot offer you Matt Saracen. But if you're looking for TV-related angles in this year's tournament, consider that Julia Louis-Dreyfus will likely be courtside rooting for the Northwestern Wildcats, who made it into the big dance for the first time ever this year. The Veep star and her husband Brad Hall are both Northwestern alums, and their son, Charlie, plays for Northwestern. Another option. You could cheer for Michigan, the Big Ten team that walked away unscathed from a scary airplane accident, then went on to unexpectedly win its conference championship a few days later. Basically, rooting for them is like rooting for the survivors of Oceanic 15 from Lost to win the NCAA tournament. Or you could consider this. Aside from the Olympics, the NCAA tournament is one of the few sporting events that packs so many emotional moments into a competition that unfolds on television for an extended period of time. Because there are 64 teams in the tournament, 68 if you count the early play-in games, there are a lot of underdog squads whose players will likely never see a minute in the NBA in their lives. For a lot of them, their one or two games may mark the first and last time they compete at such a high level and certainly while bathed in such a bright national spotlight. When they lose in games that are often decided by a basket or two, it is heartbreaking to witness. When they win, their joy is blatant and contagious. The camera makes sure we understand all of that by capturing every grimace, every explosion of unexpected delight, and every head hung in sadness and covered by a sweaty towel that acts as a privacy curtain for a big old ugly cry. Between snapshots like these and the cheesy one-shining moment montage that traditionally closes the CBS coverage of March Badness, 
The NCAA tournament is basically the this is us of sporting events. The NCAA tournament is also the this is us of sporting events because it's rife with feel all the feels twist endings. Every time there's a buzzer beater, a game decided in the final seconds by a wing and a prayer shot, often taken from well beyond the three-point arc by a player on a team no one thought would win, it results in a visceral jolt of surprise, not unlike the jaw-dropping brought on by a sudden unexpected turn of events on one of your favorite TV dramas. In a lot of ways, it's even better. There is just as much online dissection of college basketball as there is of what's happening on Westworld or Mr. Robot. But in the case of those scripted shows, there's a chance, some might even say a good chance, that you'll figure out what's going to happen before it actually takes place. Bracketologists, on the other hand, can talk until they run out of air and type predictions until their fingertips lose their ability to leave prints. They still will not see certain March Madness upsets coming until they actually occur. Since we're living in an era rife with twist endings, this is us, the good place, the election, the Oscars, the tournament is practically built for these times. At a moment when Americans may be looking for television that gives them a break from thinking about the political chaos in our country, the NCAA tournament also provides a bit of escapism and inspiration. Every time a small college in a non-power conference wins, it's an affirmation that pleasant surprises still exist. And every time a player heaves a ball into the air and prays for a miracle that gets answered with a swish, March Madness delivers another clear eyes, full hearts moment that speaks directly to the audacity of hope and that will probably immediately go viral. That's because the best moments in the tournament are like all the best moments on television. You really have to see them to believe them. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>